Welcome to the Mind Food Podcast, where we delve into the world of smart thinking. I'm Rob Caldor, the producer of the Mind Food Podcast. At Mind Food, we believe in providing our listeners with the latest and greatest in community, health, beauty, and style, home and travel, food and drink. Join us as we explore fascinating topics, interview experts, and provide insights into living your best life. Our guest today on the Mind Food Podcast is Mark Fennell, podcaster, radio host, TV host, media everything, and documentarian. Is that a word, documentarian? Sure, okay. why not? Let's make it one. Mark, we're talking today about your latest and most personal documentary called The Kingdom. Tell me, what is The Kingdom about? Well, I was raised in a series of big evangelical churches, including the big and most famous one to ever come from Australia, the church we now call Hillsong. And I left that world when I was sort of 19, 20. But in the intervening years, that church and that denomination has grown massively. It became the fastest growing denomination in Australia. But that kingdom is in crisis. Over the last couple of years, we've seen massively high profile scandals at Hillsong, accusations of sexual impropriety, financial mismanagement, or a whole bunch of their churches that they set up around the world in the US have either shut down or, or left the Hillsong family. And we know that people who go to Hillsong are leaving. Their attendance numbers have dropped, their revenues dropped. And what we're living through right now is a profound turning point in the world of Pentecostal Christianity where that kingdom is in crisis, but all these other churches, and there's lots of different Pentecostal mega churches around Australia, a lot of whom have lived in the shadow of Hillsong for a long time are now essentially moving in and they are inheriting disaffected or let's say hurt ex-Hillsongers. And so there's a turning point that we're living through right now. And the question is, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where Australia, of all places, was producing this mega church that like people don't realise how big Hillsong was. I mean, they had churches all around the US, millions of people, not just Pentecostal Christians, sing Hillsong songs every week. I went to an Anglican primary school and we sang Hillsong songs there. They won Grammys. I'm, as far as I'm concerned, whether you like or understand Hillsong or not, it's one of Australia's most powerful exports. It should go Iron Ore, Hemsworth Brothers, Hillsong, right? But right now they're in a degree of freefall. And the question is, how do we get here? And what happens next? Is history going to repeat itself with these other churches? And that's the question we're going to find out. I watched the documentary. It's your usual documentary. You've got you narrating it and mm. then boom, suddenly <laughs> the camera flips and you're in the documentary. Yeah. So, was not the plan. <laughs> it was not the plan. It happened by accident. So I think the way we started with this, because we have a small team at SBS that we make these things with, and they've all known me for a long time. We've all worked together for a long time. And then we were like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. They, they kind of knew that I'd, I had this background. And, and they're like, it's fine. We'll, we'll go off and we'll start. We started to record these interviews. And I had these, I'd get to the end of these interviews, and I'd, I'd have this really weird, I'd enter like this odd sort of fugue state. Mm. I'd sit there in the chair after the shot and go, wow, I feel like I've regressed to childhood. And you know how people chuck around the term like trigger warning? You've been triggered and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a cliche. It's a bit of a buzzword, right? I think it was the first time I kind of understood what that term meant. I was like, oh, I haven't dealt with any of my feelings about this because I literally ran away. In fact, I think what we, what we would actually call it now is like quiet quitting. I quiet quit Christianity mm-hmm. when I was sort of 19, 20. And I think the team sort of looked at me and they went, are you, are you okay? And I was like, I'm not sure that I am. Mm. And I couldn't quite put in, and this is weird because I'm a communicator. My job is talking, right? And I could not put into words, uh, it, like 
with the team, Elise Pataka, who, who wrote and directed, I could not put into words why I was feeling weird about it. And we proceeded this way for a while. <laughs> and we're like, this is, we need to address you. And so the decision was made that they were going to sit me in front of three cameras and the team was just going to fire off questions at me and see what happened. And we shot at the back end of last year and I was pretty burnt out. Last year I had this big show for the ABC called Stuff the British Style and I, and I was travelling around the world and I, I kind of got back and I was really, really, really broken <laughs> at the end of last year. And they were like, do you want to wait till next year to shoot this interview? I'm like, no, you want me to be honest and raw? You do it now. Get, get you while you're down. Get me, get me while I'm, I, I have my defences down. And so the day before Christmas 2022, I sat in front of three cameras and the team, people who, again, have known me for the longest time, they just fired questions at me. I got to the end of it. We, did, we shot for like five hours. And you can, this is the, th- that interview kind of makes up the thread about the middle of the film. And I think... I think it fundamentally changed what kind of film it was going to be because I, I've grown up on camera. My first job in television was when I was sort of 18, 19, and I, I've sort of grown up in public to a degree. But I don't think I'd ever talked about this. I've, I've casually mentioned it in interviews over the years, but I've never actually talked about it. And one of the reasons is because my experience of the Pentecostal Church is really complicated. In some ways it would be a lot simpler if I had just had a bad thing happened and then I left And I don't wish that on anyone, by the way, but it would have been simpler to explain, but I didn't have that experience. On the one hand, I was raised in it. I had no choice about it initially. Like I have these really vivid memories of sitting in my bedroom as a sort of 11, 12 year old and hearing this sort of booming rhythmic sound of people speaking in tongues and doing what they call spiritual warfare in our living room. And I was was explaining this to somebody and I was like, I reckon I'm the only kid in primary school who regularly had demons being thrown out in their living room. <laughs> like I, that's, and I said that, I went, I just realised as I said it out loud, that's weird. But then as I got older, as my parents' marriage sort of disintegrated, Christian churches and families were an absolute refuge for me. I pretty much got ab- sort of adopted by another family while my, my home life was in, in disarray. And those people represent the best of what that faith can be to me. Everybody who's ever grown up in faith has questions, right? And you start off with your sort of generic, why does God let bad things happen? And then you sort of graduate to, so this whole world created in seven days thing, are we going with that literally or as an allegory? Then you graduate to the, so let's talk about this no sex before marriage thing. Are we, are there any wiggle room on that? Just asking for a friend. And then I think the questions piled up, but the answers didn't. And I think the biggest one for me, and it's a, it's a kind of a big part of the film is I realized I couldn't feel God. Now, for most people, I don't think that really matters, right? But the problem is Pentecostalism is a faith built on feeling. When you see the big lights, when you see the big music, whenever there's a new story, that's what you see, right? That's there for a purpose. It's curated. It's there to give you the feeling, the big, this, this warm, fuzzy feeling that, that is so central to being Pentecostal Christian. And I realised that I was faking it. I'd been faking it for years I had this really defined moment. Like when people talk about their life, usually it's like gradual changes. This was a moment. It was an actual pivot point in my life where I, I was at a church. Incidentally, I think it's the church that Scott Morrison went to, although I didn't realise it at the time. And I remember there's always this, the Pentecostal services are always, no one likes to admit it, but they were kind of a bit similar. You have your three big banger songs, your three sort of emotional songs. Then they announce all the prayers that were answered that week and everyone's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. That's when they ask for money. Then there's the the sermon and the, you can always tell when the sermon's coming to an end because the music starts swelling, a little bit of gentle piano, music starts swelling and it builds and it builds and builds to an altar call. 
And that's when they're like, if you want to invite Jesus into your heart, da 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 da. If you need, if you need Jesus' help with something, da 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 da. Put up your hand. Put up your hand. Eyes down. Everyone, close your eyes. Hands up in the air. And I was in that moment. I was in that point. So you've been on the whole emotional roller coaster. It's very sort of curated journey. And everyone else had their hands up and their eyes down, and tears were flowing, and people speaking in tongues. And I did something I'd never done before, which is I opened my eyes. I looked around, and I realized something. In that moment, either Everyone was faking it in a stunningly coordinated act. Or there was a God and he had very specifically decided that that guy in aisle three, not going to talk to him. And actually, when you think about what that means, that the creator of the universe has decided he's going to talk to everyone except you, I just realized it was actually too painful to consider the possibility of that. And so that was my moment. I'm like, I actually can't do this anymore. I have to leave. What was it like for your family when you left? Were they still practicing? So it's interesting with my family because some of them are still very much part of it and some of them are not. So we actually, even within the family, all have a kind of slightly different experience of it. And we tend, <laughs> we tend not to talk about it too much. And so I think the family members were still in it. I think it was a process of understanding for them. And I try to put myself in their shoes because in their shoes, it's like, oh, wow, he's, you know, he's going to hell. He won't be there in eternity with me. And I, I appreciate for them that's a really hard concept. But they've been pretty good, to be honest with you. I, like, I know low-key those family members are, maybe they're, like, crossing their fingers and being like, maybe he'll come back. Mm. It's not going to happen. You know, when people talk about their experiences of leaving churches and some of the horrific experiences people have, mine wasn't. I, I didn't get excommunicated from the family or anything like that. I think in the, in, in the multiple versions of how people can leave religious institutions and the negative things that can happen to them, I was very lucky in the sense that I didn't cop any of that. It was just a, just a mild sense of disappointment, mm. which actually, you know, putting it in context, I kind of respect. What is the appeal? Is it the music? I think music is central to it, but I think it's not the end of it. So it is funny, whenever Pentecostal Christianity gets talked about in like a news report, there's a sort of like a, a mental checklist of what of people click off and you can always like go there'll be the there'll be the Justin Bieber clip there'll be, mm. there'll be the, like so the, I think the Justin Bieber thing it was amazing because I was very much well and truly out by the time Hillsong blew up in the US so I was watching it from afar just being like that random thing that I went to when I was a kid that's now in like Bieber goes there that's wow like I remember looking at it from afar going wow that thing got big like it was big when I was there as a kid but like there was now it's huge and I remember watching it from far going, that's wild. I think when we talk about why people are drawn to Hillsong, I think it's important to note that the the music is essential to part of its appeal, but it's not the beginning and the end of it. There is no question that Hillsong puts on a truly incredible show. It's funny, I was talking to some musician friends the other day and I, and I realised how many of them had all done stints playing in Hillsong bands in their youth at various different points. And there was like, it actually was like, it was a really tight, well-paying kick. Mm -hmm. It's what some of them said. I was like, okay, fair enough. So Hillsong as a spectacle is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And it is mimicked by churches everywhere. I don't think Hillsong invented the megachurch. I think it's possible that they may have perfected it though, in terms of it as a show, right? Underneath that, there's a range of issues that obviously needed to be addressed. So I think that's part of it, but it's not the end of it. I actually think what people find within Pentecostal churches is a few things. The feeling is crucial, right? The emotional roller coaster, as I described it earlier, that's crucial. But I actually think it's about belonging. What those churches do really well when they are effective is they give you the right combination of spectacle, an auger of authenticity. It is very curated, but when 
good Pentecostal preachers are up there, they're quite good at sharing a bit of themselves and you feeling like you, you shared a real moment, an authentic moment. I'm saying that as though I'm, I'm, I'm framing it in a cynical way, like they're very good at sharing it. I actually think a lot of these people are really genuine and really do are sharing with the best of intentions. I'm not actually that cynical about this world like maybe people might think I am. So I think people are, and I think that's a big part of what people respond to. The distinction between what was built in Australia with Australia's brand of Pentecostalism, which I think was pioneered by Hillsong, is positivity. This is where this idea of a prosperity gospel comes from. People often talk about Hillsong and its relationship with money and how they ask for money. And it's worthy of interrogation, but I think what gets missed within that is that Brian Houston in particular, the, the, the global leader of, of Hillsong for, for many years, he was very good at explaining this idea that God wants you to prosper here and now. Your, your prosperity isn't, it wasn't just about what happens in eternity, what happens after you die. It was about in right now, in the present, God wants you to prosper and not just prosper with money, but prosper in your relationships, your career. And that idea that your life could be transformed here and now was crucial. And I think this is where the money component is interesting because people often talk about the lavish lifestyle of, of, of pastors. There is an idea built into prosperity gospel that anything good that comes, comes at the will of God. And therefore, when you have good things, it's a gift from God and you give back into the kingdom. It's cyclical in the relationship. I think what distinguishes Australia's brand of Pentecostalism to what was perhaps overseas was they did put this incredibly positive angle on. It was not about fire and brimstone. It wasn't about casting out demons. It was about God believes and loves you in the here and now. And that, that's different to Catholicism or very, the older traditional? Yeah, it, it, very different. But it's even different to, you know, the brand of evangelical Christianity that had sort of proliferated in the US. That, I think, is why we managed to export. That's my opinion as to why we managed to create something in this country that exported and was picked up so effectively around the world. And now you have all these other churches who who were doing, you know, similarish things, but I don't think anyone would deny that Hillsong sort of eclipsed. Uh, I, Hillsong sort of eclipsed everyone to a degree and then other churches in Australia started to look at that and go, oh, well, there's elements of that we could fold in and it sort of changes the contours of, of belief around the country. What's interesting for me as an observer of Hillsong and the other churches is that they've embraced modernity. Mm. Things like... Obviously, the music and the music is very listenable, and the social media, all, all that kind of modern stuff seems to be appealing. Do you think that's behind sort of the growth of it appeal to youth? Yeah, I mean, now they all do it. Like now, all of the the mega churches around the country, even they don't even have to be mega, just like any Pentecostal church, they're all really good at social media now. I get credit where it's due. I do think Hillsong were particularly influential at at using media. Um, using podcasts, putting things on YouTube. They, they were very good at it. And it, it is a big part of their growth. I think it comes down to what they're offering. And I think what they're offering was an amazing emotional experience in the room and a sense of belonging. One of the issues I think it's worth pointing out is that it's not just the big service on Sunday. You've also got, you know, you'd have like connect groups during the week where people kind of come together in small groups because it's actually unsustainable. Like you don't feel a big sense of community in the room. You feel a big sense of event in the room. You often need those smaller relationships to kind of walk your path as it were. I don't think you can under, undervalue how much people felt like they belonged. They were part of a family. They were building a kingdom. I think that it's important to understand that it's not just the, the big shiny. Big shiny get, will get you so far. There's a, there's a really strong emotional component that was holding it together, which is also why... When scandals started to come out, 
There's always been things that needed to be reported about about Hillsong from the from the early days here and there, right? But it's certainly it it but you know the revelations about Brian Houston's father, Frank Houston, who confessed to being a pedophile to his son, like after those started things started coming out, because people had such an emotional sense of belonging to this community, and there's a pretty consistent response you'll get from people whenever bad news stories come out about a place like Hillsong, which is it's an attack by the enemy. And even now, Brian Houston, who's been ousted as the head of Hillsong, he, he, he frames everything, like documentaries like mine, the stuff that's coming out of the US, he frames them as, a, as attacks by the enemy. I think Christianity does have a bit of a problem in the sense that it has ready-made, in God and the devil, it has a ready-made mechanism to externalise consequences. So anything good that happens, the prosperity gospel, anything good that happens is because God wills it. Anything bad that happens is because the enemy is attacking you. I think sometimes people's choices and behaviour can be masked and obscured by constantly making everything about a deity above. Or One of the interesting things that I think, not just the financial clout that they have to politics. In this country, at least, political leaders of both stripes, Labour and Liberal, have both, they've both spoken at Hillsong conferences. I mean, we found footage of John Howard's famously speaking at, at a Hillsong event. Bob Carr spoke at a Hillsong event. But I think Scott Morrison was different, right? I think I will always remember when he invited cameras into his church to show him with his, you know, head down, arms up. And I remember thinking he was very clever because there's a whole bunch of people that looked at that and went, oh my God, he's, he's, he's a Pentecostal. How terrible. And mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of people that would have, that did have that reaction. You saw it on Twitter. But those people were never going to vote for Scott Morrison anyway. That isn't that is a null loss, right? But there are millions of people around this country that do go to Pentecostal churches or evangelical churches that did see that photo and recognised it for what it was. Which is, and I remember thinking at the time it was very clever because who people who maybe didn't know him recognised that that position, recognised that face, and went, "He's one of us." But people who ha- had already formed their judgment on on Hillsong or him, they, it's it's a clean bounce. Like they were never going to vote for him anyway. There's no loss there. Now, in the end, I actually think that photo and Scott Morrison's relationship with, with Hillsong, which is also, it's a fallacy that he was a member of Hillsong. He was a member of another church called Horizon, but he went to Hillsong Conference and literally every Pentecostal in the country at some point has been to a Hillsong Conference. I, it's, it always annoys me when people say he's from Hillsong, he's not. But the fact of the matter is, in the end, the relationship between him and Pentecostal Christianity and Brian Houston, I don't think anyone won out of that. I think in the end it damaged all parties and I don't think anybody came looking good out of that. I think there's a lesson in there potentially for for future politicians about whether leveraging their faith, and I don't for a second doubt that Scott Morrison is quite genuine in his beliefs. I actually think he is, Now that does that, but I think we can separate his prime ministership from his faith and I think we should separate his prime ministership from his faith. But the moment he invited cameras in to take those photos... And he did. He invited cameras in. They're forever going to be linked. I don't know that it was great for him in the end. Do you think the Pentecostal churches target minority groups or different cultures? It's always been multicultural. Like this is, I don't, do they target? It's an interesting way. It's it's an interesting way of framing it. Do they target? I know from my life experience that every Pentecostal church I've ever been to and I grew up in Sydney, has always been super multicultural. It's always been that way, like from the 80s and 90s upwards. I've known it to always be that way. Now, that could be simply a byproduct of where I grew up, 
I grew up in sort of Burwood, Ashfield, so places that, mm. you know, Hurstville. Like I went to places that were always pretty multicultural, right? And so maybe if it's like a traditionally white mm. area, I might not necessarily have the same experience. I can't speak to intent, I guess is what I would say. It's like I can't tell you that I found a piece of paper somewhere that says, we're going to target the brown ones. Like I don't mm. think, I don't, I've never found that. But I do think it's always, in my life experience, it's always attracted people from multicultural communities and people who had recently arrived in Australia. It's funny, I was talking to somebody the other day, she's Maori from New Zealand, and she was saying that her cousins, when they came over from New Zealand, they just slotted right in to, to Hillsong because it was a ready-made community. Well, right? I think we're, we're a country of immigrants and yet the concept of immigration is a traumatic thing. And so yeah. having, having a base is probably a powerful mechanism. It's a really important point and I'm, I'm glad you made it because that's actually a big part of what it is. It's, it's, it's ready-made community. Mum's from Singapore. She's Indian from And I do think, like, we don't have a lot of extended family on that side of the family here. And I do think church absolutely kind of filled that gap. Like, we, we were just sort of subsumed into church families. And so as a result, you know, I was raised in sort of like extended Greek communities and extended mm-hmm. Islander communities. And I think maybe it's one of the reasons why I feel kind of just comfortable moving between community to community, even though I don't quite belong. I'm just like, ingratiate me. Mm. Because we were just raised with lots of like big Italian families. Like we were just sort of raised around like just being sort of on the satellite edges of multiple different ethnicities that we didn't quite belong to. Mm. <laughs> Ready-made communities got to be a core of it. You're right. Where are you standing now? What's your what's your belief system now in in a greater system? Big question. No, it's a good question, and I didn't have a good answer to it when we started this. I live my life as though there is no God. I'm not sitting there like praying in the corners before I step into things. I, I live my life as though there is no God. But I reckon deep down under the layers of my everyday atheism. I probably do still believe that there is something there guiding the universe. And it's not because I've chosen to believe that way. It's because it's very hard to shake. Like when you are raised in something from day dot, the little seed is planted at the very beginning. And I don't think I can completely shake that idea. And I'm banking on a deathbed confession to hedge my bets at the end. It just seems like smart investment, right? I live my life as though there is no God, but I, at the same time, I think on some level, if you dig deep enough, I probably still believe that there is something there. But I do know that whatever it is, is probably more complex and more interesting than what I was presented with as a kid. I mean, you, you live life with some form of moral code. Yeah, but I mean, there's this weird idea that somehow you need faith to have a moral code. Some of the nicest people I've ever met and interacted with don't believe in God. So I'm not, and some of the, and some of the most unpleasant people I've met do. So I'm like, the idea that somehow you need a faith to have a moral code, I've never quite bought. Although I think as I grew up, I probably would have thought that. And there's probably a lot of people of faith that do think that because they have faith, they have a moral code. Everyone has a moral code of some kind. Some people are more cognizant of it. Some people are more expressed with it. In the film, we obviously talk to people that are still very much in the world and and at the end they found their home. And then we also talk to some people that shoot up, spat out, and some people leave entirely, like me. But I think the most interesting characters in the film are the people who who come out of the rubble of their experience of a Pentecostal church and then go, I have to pick and choose. Which parts of this do I want to believe? Which parts of this do I want to own? And those are actually the most interesting people to me because there are actually people that go... I have to create something. I have to create a belief. And there's this one woman, Sue, who I just think is brilliant. She's like, it's actually made her face stronger because now what she does is every time she encounters something 
in the church, she or a person or personality, she measures it against Christ. Is that what Christ? It, literally, she's the walking, you know, rubber band. Like, what would Jesus do? And I think it's made her. It's made her to her face stronger because now she can measure everything against that. I think for me, I, I think what I would encourage people to do. My first hope is actually that Christians watch it because it's actually for them that it matters. The issues being raised in it about the relationship to money, the the overwork, healthy boundaries. It's actually their lives that that stuff affects. It's about it's a film about everyday Christians. It's not so much a film about Brian Houston and the leadership. And I think what I would encourage people to do is it's not ungodly to ask questions. It's not ungodly to ask, is this community healthy? Is its relationship to money and and volunteering, is that healthy? It's not ungodly to ask those questions and it's not ungodly to expect real transparency from your leadership because we are at a turning point. Hillsong was powerful and changed lives, both for the better and worse, but I think now in this moment as it declines is an opportunity to learn. These other churches are inheriting the flock, right? It is up to them to learn from the lessons of what's gone wrong not just as Hillsong, but, you know, in churches everywhere. It's up to them to use this moment to learn and it make it better for the Christians that live in their flocks. And that's what I hope. I hope people take the opportunity to ask the questions and change the kingdom for the better. Now, Mark, where can we watch The Kingdom, your documentary? The Kingdom is available for free on SBS On Demand and you can just stream it to your heart's content. Watch it multiple times even. Mm. Mark, we ask every guest this question. Mm-hmm. What's been your favourite meal of all time? Ooh, that's a good question. There's a, a noodle dish that you can get. There's a dish called chakwetia, which is actually sort of it's like thick noodles, like a little bit like pad CU, but it's the Malay, Singapore version. They constantly debate who owns it. I say it's Singaporean, but like don't find it. And chakwetia is my, my go-to meal. It's stunningly unhealthy because I cook it with like lard and stuff, mm. but it's, it's multiple different kinds of meats, thick noodles, a soy sauce base, and it's like my happy, it's my happy food. <laughs> when you think of eating it, where is it? Where would you go? You can get it at any Malaysian uh, restaurant, I guess, because it's hard to find quote-unquote Singaporean ones. But I often make it. I make it at home. So you can go to my place if you want. All right, so it's an open invitation to Mark Fennell. Mark, thanks for being part of the Mind Food Podcast. The pleasure was entirely mine. If you enjoyed this content, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and online. Also be sure to check out Mind Food magazine for even more smart content. In our next episode, we speak to Cameron Douglas, Mind Food's resident sommelier. Michael McHugh will be back for our next podcast. I'm Rob Caldor. Thanks for listening.